Thank you all for joining. We'll just wait another two minutes and then we'll begin. Okay, good morning, everyone, and welcome to day one of the Summer Learning Program. It's great to be together with all of you on, on Zoom. Um, today, we're very honored to have Rabbi Moss, who I think has joined us basically every year for this program, which is amazing. Um, and Rabbi Moss is going to be talking about, Rabbi Moss is the Rabbi of Nefesh Shul. He's going to be talking about mantras, meditations, and mendacity, if I pronounced that right, the shocking truth behind non-religious spiritual practices. Rabbi Moss, you're a co-host, so you can just unmute yourself and you can share a screen if you want to. Thanks, Rabbi Levy, and good morning, everybody. Great to be with you at the Bina Summer Learning Program. It's, a, it's an amazing program that happens uh, every year, and it's my honor to be a part of it again. So the topic, which Rabbi Levy did pronounce correctly, uh, mantras, meditations, and mendacity. Mendacity just means lies. But, but lies starts with an L, not with an M. Um, the topic is one that has disturbed me greatly recently. It's a story that I guess I've, I've exposed uh, to myself and I feel the need to expose to you because it is very, very troubling. Uh, on the topic of, of meditation, meditation is one of those things that has become mainstream these days. If you, if you think back, 20, 30 years ago, uh, who did meditation? There were people who were a bit more alternate, people more into the Eastern stuff. There were, there were certain people who were into meditation. But today, meditation has become like uh, vegetarianism and gluten-free food and other things that maybe were once niche and are now mainstream. Everybody does their meditation. Everybody um, has their therapist. Everybody has cer certain, certain practices that have become totally normal. And, and very much encouraged. And by and large, this has been a very positive thing that many of you who would have practiced meditation would know that it can be an extremely centering, relaxing thing. It can take away a lot of stress and it can be extremely uplifting. And not necessarily does meditation have to be a religious practice. There are many secular forms of meditation and there are many people who would not describe themselves as religious at all, but are avid meditators. That, that is a, a very, very common thing. But something that I've recently uncovered is that some of the schools of meditation that are commonly taught present themselves as being non-religious and therefore suitable for anybody of any religion or no religion. However, with a little bit of digging, it is revealed that that is not actually the case. The way I got into this topic was I, I noticed that there were certain people in my community who were involved with, with meditation schools, and some of them were going quite seriously on a regular basis to, to do meditations, and several had gone on retreats as well. 
And they assured me that these retreats are completely not religious. They're, they're part of, they're neutral. They're open for anyone. There's no, there's no religious practice involved. And uh, I, I accepted what they said until I heard a little bit more about what they were doing and started looking into it. And it didn't seem to be exactly the case. Um, around the same time as I was looking into this, I was contacted by an old friend, somebody who I'd gone to kindergarten with and hadn't really been in touch since then. He reached out to me and he said that he is involved in meditation and he wanted to learn a bit about Jewish meditation and Jewish ideas of spirituality. So we got together and, and started chatting and I did a bit of learning and studying with him. And I asked him a bit about his practice. And it ended up that he, for the last six or so years, has been quite seriously into a meditative school called the Vedic School of Meditation, which, is, which was the same one that people from my shul had been involved in. And he also assured me that this was a completely secular practice. It had no religious content, but he was meditating uh, 20 minutes twice a day on a daily basis uh, at the beginning. It then extended to even, even longer to the point where now he'd been doing it for six years and he would meditate two hour meditations, uh, sometimes more than, more than even once a day. And he was planning to become a practitioner of this, a master of this meditation. And uh, for that, he was going to go to a, a course. So I, I, I said, this is it's really interesting. And um, I, I want to look into this a little bit further about you know, what, what exactly is the, is the nature of this meditation? And he told me how it's all based on a mantra, that you, you get a mantra, which is a word that is your personal mantra. It's given to you because it's, it's, it's specifically for you. And this word you repeat, the word has no particular meaning, but just by repeating the word, the sound of the word, it becomes this sort of delightful experience. You go into like a higher state of relaxation and it's just, just very, very centering. It allows your mind to be at peace. And it, it, for him, he says it's, it's changed his life and it's been very positive. And, and, that, and that's all it is. Sounds very innocent and fine and nice. What, what could be wrong with that? Uh, and indeed, the people in my shul who were involved with the same meditation, when I asked them, they said the same thing. They said, we're given a mantra. It's personal. Uh, but you're not allowed to share it with anyone. You can't, you can't tell anyone your mantra. You're not even supposed to say it out loud. You're just supposed to think it in your mind over and over until you sort of lose yourself in it. And the mantra is in Sanskrit, which is the ancient uh, uh, language of, uh, of the Hindus, a little bit like Yiddish, um, not really very linguistically related, um, but I guess it's a, well, it's a language, like Yiddish is a language. And, and so the... They, they use that language, but that's mainly because they don't want you to say a word you understand. It's, it's not about understanding. It's not about the meaning of the word. It's about just the, the sound of the word itself. And by repeating that over and over, you go into this meditative state and it's very, very relaxing, which, you know, sound, sounded lovely. But I just wasn't sure when you hear that they're using this sort of Sanskrit ancient language, you're not, you're not allowed to say what the word is to anybody. It's your personal thing. It just sounded, started sounding a little bit fishy to me. So I wanted to go into it a little bit, a little bit further. And so I did a bit of research. I spoke to a, a woman who I, I had seen some of her writings. Um, her name is um, Rustavara Wallen in America. Um, she teaches uh, a secular form of meditation, but she had been involved 
with these meditative schools. And I spoke to her. She gave me some direction and uh, a little bit more information. And what I uncovered was quite shocking and I believe quite dangerous as well. I'm going to share my screen and um, show you a few of the things that I have discovered. And you can see for yourself what the truth is in this topic. Let's go over here. Sorry. Um, second. Sorry, go to the beginning of this. Okay, mantras, meditation, and mendacity. The shocking truth about so-called non-religious spiritual practices. Let's, let's see how non-religious they actually are. So this is a quote from a website of a center. I don't want to say the name of it. I don't want to particularly point anybody out um, or advertise anybody, but this is from a local meditation center very nearby to where we are. Um, and on their website, it has a, a section, learn to meditate. So the technique taught at blank meditation center is Vedic meditation. Same one as my friend was involved in. The Vedic meditation technique originated in India over 5,000 years ago and comes from the same body of knowledge as yoga. Like yoga, it can be practiced by anyone regardless of religion or belief system. It is incredibly easy to learn and is extremely effective. Learning to meditate will bring immediate and profound benefits to your life. To practice Vedic meditation, you sit comfortably in a chair with your eyes closed and repeat a personalized mantra, which is a sound vibration in your mind. The mantra effortlessly leads the mind into quieter, more subtle states. No concentration, force, or effort is required. The process is simple and natural. In meditation, the mind comes to experience a pervasive calm, which practitioners have described as, at its fullest as bliss. This in turn brings a sense of calmness, clarity, lightness and adaptability to the meditator's daily life life becomes easier richer and more rewarding sounds fantastic sounds amazing i mean who wouldn't want this and sounds really easy simple and very very neutral it's like yoga everyone goes to yoga right there's not there's, there could be nothing wrong with that and so there's nothing wrong with this it's not it's not a religion or a belief you don't have to sign up to any belief you just have to get this word say it and and it's really simple and the website there says that you can go to four classes. Uh, I think that costs $100 perhaps. And after that, you're done and you have a lifetime of support. Uh, you, you, you're fine. So th this looks very attractive, very simple, very non-threatening. And uh, what possible problem could there be here? Now, the bold sections I've, bold I've bolded because I'm going to question the statements here. It says that like yoga, it can be practiced by anyone regardless of religion or belief system. Now, first of all, the comparison is to yoga. I'm not going to go into it now. However, that itself, to say that yoga can be practiced by anyone of any religion or belief system is also not such a simple thing to say. There are parts of yoga that are problematic for a believer in monotheism. Uh, for a Jew and really for anyone in the world who is not allowed to worship idols. The prohibition of idolatry is not only to Jews in the Ten Commandments, but it's one of the seven commandments to all mankind. And there are parts of yoga that 
are idolatrous. Now, just doing stretches is fine, but once you're doing uh, saying statements, uh, making a, 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 a statement towards some type of energy, which some yoga things, some positions are to, trying to connect to some spiritual energy, that can be problematic and that can be idolatry. So to say it's like yoga as if yoga is totally unquestionably fine, that itself needs to be questioned. That, that, is, that is debatable. Uh, there are certainly forms of yoga that, are, that are, are completely kosher, but not all. But let's put that aside for now because our topic is not yoga. The, the, here we're just talking about the meditation. It can be practiced by anyone regardless of religion or belief system, implying that there is no re religious system here. There's no belief system. It's not contradictory to anything. I'm going to question that. The, the, the picture there on the page I've blurred it because I didn't want to uh, expose anyone to impure pictures of idolatry. But this is from that website, from the same page. It's got a picture here of, I, I guess they would be described as the masters or the gurus of this meditation. Uh, in front of that picture is a little bowl in which you're supposed to place offerings of fruit or flowers. There's a candle lit. And then there's an incense uh, dispenser there as well. So this fruit and incense is, is offered to these gurus. That looks to me like idolatry, but perhaps it'll be explained as something else. We'll see. But it looks certainly, certainly a bit, bit suspicious. We're going to question this, whether this is kosher for anyone of any religion or any belief system. And we're also going to question the other uh, highlighted phrase that you get a personalized mantra which is a sound vibration the mantra is just a sound vibration in your mind and it's personalized to you uh, and by repeating that you get into this relaxing state now i'm not questioning that this works i believe it does work that you do feel this relaxation it does work but i'm questioning whether this mantra is personalized whether all it is is a sound vibration and whether anyone of any religion or belief can practice this comfortably. That we're going to question. Let's have a look. First of all, are mantras personalized? What's, what, what is taught and what my friend who I spoke to told me is that each person is given their personal mantra by their meditation teacher. I asked him how many mantras are there? He said there must be hundreds, maybe thousands, um, because each person gets one that is specific to them. And you're not allowed to share it. You can't tell anyone what this mantra is. So no one's, no one's comparing notes. You just have it and you say it and you repeat it. And it has no particular meaning, he told me. So are, are they personalized? So this is a discussion that was, that was uh, transcribed. This is between the Maharishi Maharishi Yogi. He is the founder of what's known as Transcendental Meditation or TM, uh, trademark. Uh, and, and it's... Um, it's a school of meditation that became extremely popular in the 50s and 60s. So those of, of that vintage would remember that the Beatles got involved with this guy, and as did many other celebrities. Uh, he came from India, but he's the one who really brought Eastern meditation to the Western world. And he was the founder of a movement called Transcendental Meditation, which has sometimes been accused of being a cult. And uh, he... He died uh, 20 or so years ago, uh, even though he promised eternal life for those who practice this meditation. 
He also promised the ability to levitate, to become extremely wealthy, and to have a, a life of, of peace and harmony. He indeed became extremely wealthy because his students uh, had to pay exorbitant amounts to become meditation teachers and experts. He died with, with a, a, an estate of billions of dollars. Um, and this conversation he had with one of the, one of the, the teachers that he was uh, bringing into to become a master meditative teacher. So this is specifically about the mantras. So the, the questioner asked the Maharishi that the criteria you gave us, say, three to five and five to ten years, which mantra do we use if they are five? Meaning that the mantras were based by age. A person who was aged three to five or five to ten or ten to twenty or twenty to twenty-five or whatever, they, they get a particular mantra. Anyone that age. So they, he asked, so if it's three to five and five to ten, what about someone who's five? Do they get the three to five one or the five to ten one? as their age. So the Maharishi answered three to five must mean until five. Now, after that, we use the next mantra. So if you've turned five, you're considered five to 10, you get the next mantra. So that means anyone age five to 10 gets the same mantra. The question then says, what if it's the student's birthday? On that day, do they, are they considered three to five or five to 10? So he answers the age they are that day. If they're five, so then they're in the next category. Then the next question, what if it's their birthday tomorrow or next week? Well, the same, the age they are that day, if they're not yet five, they're in the category before. What if a lady lies about her age on the initiation form? So she tells us an age, but she's actually not that age. Assumedly, she's older. So the Maharishi answered, that's not our concern. And he giggles. The, the teacher is not responsible for a student's karma. If you lie, then that's, that's your problem. It's not the teacher's problem. So then the final question, what if a, the, the, the transcendental meditation teacher makes a mistake, gives the wrong mantra? He says, it doesn't matter much. All the mantras are good for all the people. In other words, the mantras are given by age. It doesn't really matter which mantra you give anyone. They're all good for all people. That's what the Maharishi said to his, to his uh, initiates. And that, by doing some research, is very clear that, the, that there are only about 16 mantras for different age groups. Everyone gets the same one. There's nothing particularly personalized about it. It's just by the age, when you come and ask for your mantra, you get a mantra based on that age. So they're all good for all people. In fact, the Maharishi himself said that you could use anything for a mantra. Any word will work. If you repeat any word in your head over and over, it actually will work. But these are the mantras that we, that we give. So there's nothing very personalized about it. And now perhaps you can understand why they have to be secretive. You can't tell anyone your mantra because, well, they'll say, hey, that's mine. Well, that's, there, are, there are only a few. There are only a very, very few mantras. So it's not so personalized, although you could say that that's not a total lie. Personalized meaning if you're age 40 to 45, you get this personal mantra for people age 40 to 45. It's not exactly very personalized, but it, it, it seems a little bit of a stretch. But it gets worse than that because everyone who teaches this will tell you that the mantras are meaningless, that, that there's no meaning to them. And I asked my friend that I've heard that these mantras are actually names of gods, of Hindu gods. He said, no, 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 no. The, the, the mantras don't have any meaning. He was, he's been told that by his teachers. The mantra, the, there's no meaning to it, the mantra. You're not saying the word because it has a meaning. You're saying the word for its sound. It has a, a beautiful sound. And so the, the meaning is, is, not, is not relevant. But is that actually the case? Are these mantras meaningless or, or not? So 
here are a few interesting quotes on that topic. Um, this top one is a quote again from the Maharishi, the Maharishi, the founder of, the, of, of Transcendental Meditation. He says, for our practice, we select only the suitable mantras of personal gods. Such mantras fetch to us the grace of personal gods and make us happier in every walk of life. That's what he said in, in the book, Beacon of Light of the Himalayas, which was in the 1950s, uh, a very popular handbook for this, uh, this school of meditation. He said it straight out. The mantras are personal gods. That's, that's what we choose. Even though he himself said any word will work, but when you say the, the, a personal God name, so then it makes you happy in every walk of life. Very open and very clear about it. Later, there was a bit of an issue that the Maharishi realized that if he's teaching straight out Hinduism, there are going to be people who are not so happy with this. The people who feel that it is contrary to their monotheistic belief. He wanted his school of meditation to appeal to Christians, Muslims, and to Jews uh, who have a certain aversion towards idolatry. And so therefore he stopped using the, these type of words about personal gods. And he started using the phrase impulses of creative intelligence. That, that's how he described the, the mantras as being impulses of creative intelligence, which is vague enough to not sound too idolatrous. If you ask a, a meditative teacher, they, they will answer you, are these mantras, are they names of God? What do they mean? So they'll say things like, and these are quotes from various places I've seen, the mantras have no meaning for the meditator. No meaning for the meditator. Um, well, okay, what, what does that mean? This is very typical of the language they use. It is evasive language. It doesn't say that the mantras have no meaning. They have no meaning for the meditator. The meditator, in other words, doesn't know the meaning because they're not told the meaning. It's not that that has no meaning. These mantras are Hindu gods. That, that's, that's who they are. But the meditator doesn't know that. Or another place I saw, one of the teachers said, they are sounds with no literal meanings, just the vibration of the sound itself. They're not names of deities, so they're not meaningless. They have deep meaning, but not in the intellectual sense that we're used to. So again, very evasive language. Uh, it's, it's not a name of a deity, but it's a vibration. No literal meaning, but, but it's got a meaning. Very, very, very hard to understand. My, the, the friend that I spoke to, he, he put me um, in, in touch with Tom Knowles, not, not directly, but he, he showed me some of his recordings. Tom Knowles is a student of the Marishi. And uh, he lived actually in Sydney for 30 years, uh, doesn't, doesn't anymore, he's an American guy, but he was, he was a student of Maharishi who did a breakaway movement. What he, what he did is he realized that the Maharishi is making a huge amount of money teaching these meditations. Uh, he can do the same. And so Tom Knowles started his own thing and he called it Vedic meditation. He is the father of what is known as Vedic meditation. Vedic means ancient Indian uh, Hindu wisdom, the word Vedic is old, but the movement known as Vedic meditation was, was really started by him, which is a carbon copy of, of transcendental meditation. Unfortunately, transcendental meditation, which is known as TM, but they must have not got the trademark very accurately well or didn't, didn't speak to the lawyers properly because this Tom Knowles was able to steal the entire system of transcendental meditation, call it Vedic meditation, and he is now a very wealthy man uh, from teaching these these meditations so tom knowles in his recordings i heard uh says that the mantras have no intended meaning 
And he says over and over again that they have no intended meaning. No intended meaning. It's not that they don't have meaning. He, he, he was careful in his words. They have meaning. Their meaning is that they are names of gods, as the Maharishi said in the beginning. However, there's no intended meaning, meaning we're using them for their sounds, for their, for their, for their the vibrations. It, it, it's very evasive language again. They don't fully deny that these are names of gods, but they, 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 walk, they, they, they walk around it. They walk around the problem. So you can actually find online a list of these mantras. You can see what they mean, which Hindu god they refer to. They are indeed Hindu gods. And when I told this to somebody from, from my community, they were completely shocked that they were spending hours a day for years saying over and over the name of a Hindu god, of an, of an idolatrous god, and that was their, their meditation. But they told me that it's helped them. It's worked. It, it, is, it has changed their life. And they're very, very reluctant to stop. So what can we advise them? Well, we'll speak about that a little bit later. Let's go further into this to, to, to see some more issues. The puja. This is extremely important. Something that I, that I discovered in, in my research was that anyone who wants to be initiated into the Vedic meditation or transcendental meditation has to first do something called a puja, which is like an initiation ceremony. Now, my friend who I was speaking to, who is uh, a... Uh, becoming a master meditative te teacher in this, he told me that the puja is a non-religious ceremony, which is a, an initiation to start you off into this meditative practice. All it is is a recognition of the teachers that this, that, that this wisdom has been handed down to show us a certain sense of appreciation. And isn't it right to appreciate your teachers? So he told me that the person being initiated doesn't have to really uh, subscribe to any belief system. They just have to go along with this thing that the teacher is doing and leading them through to show appreciation to their, their previous teachers. However, looking at it a little bit more detail, it seems that the puja is much more than that. If you just Google the word puja, puja ceremony, it tells you this is a Hindu ceremony thanking gods and, and speaking to the gods. But they insist that no, this is a completely secular ceremony. Now, this is what on, on their websites, on the websites of these of these uh, uh, various uh, groups that teach the meditation, they present the pujas the following: it is an action of respect by the teacher to the tradition of masters, teachers who have handed down this tradition, which allows this special human experience of transcendence. That that you're about to get into this meditation, it's going to take you to a higher place going to give you a sense of transcendence. We didn't get it from nowhere. It came from our teachers that go all the way back, you know, 5,000 years and more. And so the puja is just an act of respect to those teachers. Again, that sounds quite neutral, pretty par of it. It's, it's no big deal. I've smudged the picture here again because I don't want to expose you to idolatrous images. They, they can contaminate us. Um, but on the very same site that it says the puja is this act of respect, it shows a picture of a, a, an image which looks pretty idolatrous to anyone who, who would look at it with an apple there, a, a piece of fruit, a, a flower being offered to these images. That sounds like and looks like classic idolatry, but it's being presented as just respect to the teachers, nothing more than that. So I, I wanted to know more about this puja because this 
sounded pretty idolatrous to me. So I found a book called Transcendental Deception. It's written by Arya Siegel. Yeah, he's Jewish. Uh, but he was a major meditator and teacher in the Transcendental Meditation movement. He was very close to the Maharishi, uh, the founder of Transcendental Meditation, but he got out of it uh, eventually. He, exp- he actually um, embraced Torah and mitzvahs, and he wrote a book to expose the Transcendental Meditation, as uh, he called it Transcendental Deception. And in, in his book, he writes... The puja is an ancient Hindu ritual or ceremonial worship service, one purpose of which is to create a channel of transmission from a Hindu god to the one performing or participating in the puja ceremony. Objects of worship can be various Hindu deities or gurus who are believed to embody the divine. So you're you're either worshipping, you're worshipping, but you're worshipping either the Hindu gods or the gurus, the teachers, who themselves are considered embodiments of the divine. They are gods as well. So when they say that we're just showing uh, our um, appreciation to the teachers, that is true, but the teachers themselves are seen as gods, and some of the teachers are gods as well. So this is what the, the puja is about, connecting to these Hindu gods. In the puja, offerings are made to the object of devotion, often represented by a painting or an idol, to earn his love and blessings. The offerings, usually fruit, candles, incense, flowers, symbolize surrendering one's mind, body, thoughts, desires, actions, and possessions to divine beings or gurus and enjoying whatever may come back as a gift from them. The deity or guru whose image is worshipped in the puja is considered a living incarnation of the deity. They are treated as if the deity has descended from above and actually inhabits the image. So this is classic old-fashioned idol worship. Just like it was, we read about it in Tanakh, we read about in, in the times of Abraham destroying the idols of, of, his, of his father. Uh, this is classic old-fashioned idolatry happening in Bondi, in Double Bay, all, all around us, and being presented as a, an initiation ceremony with uh, showing gratitude to the teachers. This is, this is very clearly not kosher. Now, when I spoke to my friend about this, I asked him about the puja. He said it's completely innocent. He said there's there's a certain incantation that's made in Sanskrit language. The teacher says it, the initiate repeats it, and it's just this this, uh, ritual of uh, of thanksgiving. I said, can I see a translation of that incantation? I'd love to see in English, what are they actually saying? So my friend said, well, I I don't have a translation, but I'm sure I can get one for you. I mean, this, this guy has been in, in this for six years. He's about to become a master meditative teacher. So he's going to be initiating people. So I assumed that he would be able to get me a translation of the puja. So I asked him to get it for me. A week or so went by and he said, still working on it. Uh, he emailed me that I've contacted Tom Knowles. That's the head of this movement to see if I can get permission to see the translation of the puja. He hadn't seen it himself. He'd never seen it before. So I I said, okay, well, I'm waiting. Another week or two went by and he told me that he can't get the translation because he was told that only when you become a master meditator and a teacher, then you're given the translation. Until then, you're not allowed to see the translation of the puja ceremony. I said, doesn't that strike you as a bit strange? 
that that you can't see the translation. He said, no, it's a, it's it's a, it's a, it's because of the 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 specialness of it. You know, he he took it as as face value. That's fine. What he didn't know is that I had found a translation online with a simple Google search, and the translation was extremely clear that this is a Hindu worship service of Hindu gods. It's it's extremely clear from seeing the translation. I, I said, I can show it to you. He said, no, no, he, did, he didn't want to see it. He didn't want to even see it himself. He, sa- he said, but you know how translations work. I'm sure it happens with the Torah as well. They translate things and you find something online. The translation is not so accurate. I said, yeah, that does happen. But the translation I found is a booklet that is given to the transcendental meditation teachers. The one that, that you haven't been given yet. I, I found it online by somebody who was a former member of transcendental meditation and has left it and is exposing what it really is. He still didn't want to see it, but I saw it. And I'm just giving you a warning that I'm going to show it to you in a, in a moment. Uh, however, I don't recommend that you read it out loud because in, uh, in the Torah, we're, we're told that we shouldn't mention the names of idols. We shouldn't even mention the names. There's a Torah verse. Make no mention of the names of other gods. They shall not be heard on your lips. We shouldn't even mention their name. And the reason is because the, the idolatrous gods, are they have a power to them. The power is inferred on them by people. Because people worship something, because human beings use their soul energy to worship a foreign god, that gives it a certain power, an impure power, a power of negativity. And therefore, even its name shouldn't be mentioned. This, this is why uh, we're, we're supposed to not, not have uh, uh, any idolatry around. If we, if we find an idol, we're supposed to, supposed to destroy it if it's in our property, if we're able to. Uh, because even though it's a nothingness, who cares? Someone worshipped an idol, what, what's the difference? When a person confers holiness on an object, that itself gives it an impure power. And so the names shouldn't be mentioned. Their existence should, shouldn't, be, shouldn't be maintained. We take idolatry extremely, extremely seriously. So therefore, I'm about to show you the, the, the real firsthand translation of the puja, but I'm not going to read it out loud. I'm just going to point out some phrases that make it very clear what the puja really is. Here it is. Look at, just look at the uh, highlighted section that where it's, we're addressing the creator, the pers- personified glory of the Lord the emancipator of the world. This is what the puja is uh, addressed to. To the glory of the Lord, I bow down again and again, at whose door the whole galaxy of gods pray for perfection day and night. Adorned with immeasurable glory, preceptor of the whole world, having bowed down to him, we gain fulfillment. We refer to it as the supreme teacher, full of brilliance. Uh, To him, I bring my awareness. Can anyone tell me that this is not worship of of an idol? Can anyone say that this is just some very innocent uh, acknowledgement of the teachers of the past? That's absolutely false. And there's no way that anyone within the movement doesn't know this. And yet they're presenting it as being something that is, remember, it's not contradictory to any religion, any belief system. It it, it fits with, with anyone. Well, if I am Jewish, and I believe in one God, and I believe that idolatry is forbidden, then this does not fit in with me. And to say it does is purely false and an absolute lie and extremely deceptive. And that's called mendacity. Now, 
I, I, I asked this guy, I, I, I confronted him, my friend, and I said, I, I don't understand. Like, I've asked for a translation of a prayer. It's taken a month for you to tell me that you can't give it to me until you go to the next stage and, and that you become a, a master meditator. I'm a rabbi. I teach religion. I teach Judaism. And I'm upfront about that. I, I tell people that what I'm teaching is Judaism. I, I, don't, I don't trick people. And if people wanted to know a translation of a prayer, I'd be happy. If somebody said, listen, I'm saying Kaddish, I'd like to know what it, what it means. I wouldn't tell them, well, you first have to become a rabbi and, and then, then you can find out. I'd say, well, for sure. And I'd give them the translation. If somebody says, I say the Shema every night, but I'm not sure what I'm saying. I would give them the translation readily and enjoy it. I'd love to give it to them so they should know what they're saying. Whereas you are a practitioner of this meditation school and you won't give me the translation and your masters won't give it to you. Isn't there something wrong here? And for you to say that it's a non-religious practice when it clearly is a religious practice, that is, that is just falsity. That's lies. How, how, can, how can you live with yourself? Imagine me trying to convince somebody to put on tefillin, but I realize that the person is a self-proclaimed atheist. As you know, many Jewish people say, oh, I'm an atheist, I'm not believer, I'm not, I don't believe this stuff. So I say to him, okay, I just want to do a, um, a, a, a test, you know, on your uh, pulse to see, you know, how your blood pressure is. And, and you know, the, the, if you put these on, it just, it just uh, tests your blood pressure and it makes you feel good. And, and what you do, you have to just say the words Shema Yisrael. And by saying these words, it, um, while, while you put on these black strip things on your hand, so it'll, it'll just test your blood pressure and see if you're healthy. Are you willing to do that? I would never do such a thing to, to trick a person into doing a mitzvah. And if I did, and they said to me, well, why do I have to put these black strips? I can put on, on a, a, a normal thing to test my blood pressure. Why do I need these, these black strips? And why do I have to say the Shema, these words? Like, well, what's it to do with it? So wouldn't that make it obvious that this is religious practice if it has to be this way? When I, when I, I asked my friend, I said, what if somebody wants to do your meditation, which you say is just for relaxation? It's just to relax your mind. That's all it's for. What if somebody says, I'd like to do it, but I don't want to do the puja. I'm not comfortable with the puja. I, 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 it seems to me a, a, a foreign religion. I want to do your meditation practice. I just don't want to do the puja. Can I do it? Do you know what he said? He said, no, you can't. You, you, you can't do it. You, you cannot enter into his school of practice. You can't even have, a, have a, a, an experience of it if you don't want to do the puja. It's, it's, not, it's not allowed. Is that not obviously a religion? So just say it is. I have no problem if you tell me that this is a religion and I'm teaching my religion. You're being honest. I may disagree with you. I may not think it's right, but at least you're saying what it is. But, but to tell me that it's not religious, but you must do the puja to enter it and you're not allowed to know what it means, that is dodgy. That is really dodgy. And I, I as, as a, a Jew, would never present my religion that way. I would never trick somebody into keeping a mitzvah. I wouldn't tell somebody, like these, these candles at a certain time Friday afternoon, say this prayer. It's not religious. It's just the, it, it, these candles get rid of mosquitoes. And if you say these words, so then it's very effective to get rid of any mosquitoes in your house. If you say these, these words and light this candle on Friday afternoon. I would never say such a thing. A mitzvah is a mitzvah. If you, if you don't want to do a mitzvah, okay, I understand. I'm offering you to do a mitzvah, but that's what it is. And it was very, very disappointing to speak to an otherwise normal, nice person who has got so deep into this that he doesn't see the problem of lying in order to promote it. Now, perhaps you might say, maybe this is just a, a cult. Maybe my friend is at a part of a cult 
And when somebody's in a cult, so they get lost and they, they don't know what they're doing. And that, that may even, even indeed be the case. My friend has gone through 12 different stages of meditative classes. Each stage costs $1,000 to go from one to the other. He's done this in order to then become the meditative master. But to become the master, he has to go on a three-month course, a retreat for three months that costs $40,000. Then he becomes a master. What do you get for, to becoming a master? Well, you get the translation of the puja, which I found on Google for free. And you then you get then given the permission to be, be a, a meditation teacher and then to charge other people to do the same thing. Yes, he's invested a lot of time, a lot of effort, and a lot of money into this. And so it may be very difficult for him to see the truth of what's going on. But that is really, really disturbing to me. He asked me at this stage of our conversation, what's actually wrong with idolatry? Why is Judaism so against idolatry? Let, let's, let's say it is idolatry what he's doing. Uh, what's wrong with it? What's, what's so bad about idol worship? And why does Judaism have such a, an aversion towards it? Now, that was an interesting question. If you look at Sefer HaChinuch, which is the book that goes through the, the, the 613 commandments and gives a, a brief explanation of each one, when it comes to idolatry, um, it's number 26, the mitzvah number 26 in that book. So he lays out the prohibition of idolatry, and he says that the reason is obvious, and that's it. He doesn't, doesn't go any further. He doesn't give any further explanation why idolatry is problematic, because obviously we have one God. Worshiping another God is the uprooting of the entire religion. We have many quotes in our sages that, that give the dramatic uh, impact of idolatry. One who accepts an idol is like he denied the entire Torah. Or the title Yehudi, which is a Jew in Hebrew, is conferred on one who denies idolatry. Yehudi means to admit in the one God and to deny all others. Um, the book of Tanya says, even the lowest of the lowest sinners among Israel sacrifice their lives for the sanctity of God's name and suffer harsh torture rather than deny God's unity. This is so because the one God illuminates and, and, and animates their soul. A, a, a Jew's soul is connected to God. To, to go after another God is going against our very grain, of our, our very self. It's, it's the, the, the absolute denial of self. And so I explained to this friend of mine that the problem with idolatry is once you start having many gods, there's no morality. There's no right and wrong. Only when there's one absolute power who determines right and wrong can we say that there is morality, there's good and evil. But if there's this God and that God and this God and that God and many gods, so there's conflicting moralities, which means there's no morality, there's no right and wrong. And that is at the core of idolatry is the uprooting of all morality, of all, of all good and evil, because you can justify anything when the God is of your making. And I said, and I think this is actually illustrated in your movement, I said to him, because you see no issue in lying to people about the nature of what you're teaching. You don't see that as a problem. I would see that as a problem because I have a divine morality that is higher than me, but your morality is all relative. And so you can justify lying to people to tell them that this is not a religion when it clearly is because you don't actually have a moral compass. You don't have absolute morality. That's the problem with idolatry. One of the many problems with idolatry. Now, I believe that the reason they have done this, remember Marishi in the early days was very clear about the mantras being the names of gods. He was not hiding the Hindu background 
of what he was teaching. But they changed, they shifted. And I think one of the reasons they shifted is because of Jews. You see, a Jew, like we saw in Tanya, is not willing to worship an idol. A Jew will only deny their Jewishness if they think that they can still be Jewish. Similar to the movement Jews for Jesus, that missionaries throughout history have tried to convert Jews, and unless they threatened them, they were never successful. Then came along a movement in the 1970s, Jews for Jesus. You, you're Jewish. You're still Jewish. Just accept the, the, the Christian beliefs, but you're not Christian. You're still Jewish. And that started to work a little bit more because a Jew doesn't deny their Jewishness. And I think the same thing here, that to tell a Jew, come, let's worship idols. No, a Jew doesn't do that. But if you say it's not idolatry, it's not, it's not idolatrous practice. You can still be Jewish. It's not contradictory whatsoever. So then if a Jew can justify it, then they may be tempted to do it. And I believe that the many Jewish people who I know, and I guarantee people you know who are involved with Vedic meditation, I guarantee you know people who go to these things, these retreats and these, these classes and, and do these, these meditations and have their mantras. I believe that if they would know clearly that this is idolatry, they would not do it. It's only because they're told that it's okay, it's fine, it's, it's not a contradiction that they're tempted to do it. Because a Jew does not deny their Jewishness. It, it's, it's just not in our nature. So what should we do? Uh, if it, We know this information. What should we do with this? We know that, that there are schools right here at our doorstep who are teaching clear idolatry to people who are unsuspecting, who don't realize this. There are people who are saying mantras that are, that are Hindu gods' names on a daily basis for, for, for hours on end, and they don't know that they're doing this. There are people who are offering fruit, and flowers and incense to idols, to, to depictions of idols. And they, they think that it's just an act of gratitude to their teachers. They don't know what they're doing. What do we do about it? So first of all, we have to tell people the truth. That we, we, we have to tell. We have to tell people this is what it is. If somebody tells you that I'm going to this meditation school and it's, it's completely non-religious, you have to tell them, I'm not so sure of that. I think you need to look into that further because... There are religious practices there. That is idolatry. You have to tell them. If somebody tells you that I'm going on a weekend meditation retreat and it's for, it's for all religions, it's, it's, it's okay. So I'm not so sure about that. You have to look into it further. There are meditative practices that are not religious. They do exist, but not all of them. People need to know the truth. I think we should also need to make Jewish meditation more available. I know at Bina and, and other places, there are meditation classes from a Jewish perspective. We have, the Jewish tradition has beautiful meditative practices. We, we, we have, have a, an ancient tradition of meditation. There's what's called his bonunus, his bodidus, many different, different practices. Um, also, there are breathing exercises. There's, there's evidence that Jewish people breathe um, even before Hinduism. And uh, uh, breathing is, is something that is certainly not uh, just an idolatrous practice. Um, there are ways of breathing that, that can relax. In fact, in this week's parasha, parasha Shmois, it says that when Moses was sent to the Jewish people in Egypt to tell them that I'm taking you out, it says, they couldn't hear Moses when he said that I'm, I'm taking you out of Egypt. They couldn't hear him because of shortness of breath. They were so exhausted from their work in Egypt that they couldn't hear that they were being redeemed, which Rashi says that somebody who is distressed cannot breathe long breaths. They have short breaths. They, they, they breathe quickly when, when you're distressed, whereas breathing long breaths is, is, a, is a sign of relaxation, uh, of, of calm. And so breathing is totally fine. We're allowed to breathe, and we can do our own breathing exercises. 
We can do them in a, in, a, in a Jewish way. We can offer secular alternatives as well. The Rebbe was very, very promoting the idea that we should offer secular meditative practices. So it's not, a really, not religious at all. Most people going to transcendental meditation or Vedic or any of these practices, they're not actually looking for religion. Most of them are looking for re relaxation, for, for a bit of calm. That's all they're looking for. So we should offer secular alternatives, just plain breathing without any spiritual content. That, that, sh that should be offered. In, in fact, any meditation works. One thing I have learned is that any meditation works. And the reason why they are successful is because anything works. Any time you stop and concentrate on something for five minutes and calm your mind, it will help you. It will give you a, a sense of bliss, of clarity, of relaxation. It doesn't matter what it is. They are choosing to use idol, idolatrous names and mantras in order to, to do this, but there's no innate power in that. There's a power in just stopping and relax, relaxing. If you daven every day, but properly daven, open the siddur, and look at the words, read them, think about them. Don't lift your head from the sitter the entire time you're praying, but just concentrate on the, on the prayers. And when extraneous thoughts come, push them aside and go back to the prayer. And do that even for 10 minutes if you daven every day, but real davening, it will have the same effect as meditating every day, the exact same thing. So anything works. Any concentration works. If you study Talmud, if you spend an hour learning Gemara and concentrating on a Gemara, that concentration is a meditation as well. And that will take, take you to a, a place of, of peace in your mind as well, of, of clearer thinking. So it works. Any meditation works. So if you're Jewish, do it in a Jewish way. If there's somebody who is scared of doing Jewish meditation because they don't want to become religious, so do it in a secular way. Just breathe. Just concentrate on, 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 on any sound, on music. Listen to some, some music and, and, and meditate on that. That's fine, but not idolatry because idolatry is counter to our soul. Change your mantra. If you have a mantra, change it because any mantra works, any word works. I suggested to, to one of the people in my shul who, who has been doing this for many years, take your Hebrew name as your mantra. And just repeat over and over your Hebrew name, because your Hebrew name is the name of your soul, the name of your mission. That's your, your divine power. That's your connection to Hashem. So, so meditate on that. But the Marishi himself said you can meditate on any word. Any word can be your mantra. It doesn't matter. But if you're Jewish, do it in a Jewish way. Connect to your soul. We need to be honest about it. We need to be open about it. Because in the end, every Jewish soul is seeking to connect. Why do you think it's so many Jews who get involved with these movements? It's because we are seeking to connect. But unfortunately, we haven't always been good at presenting the Jewish spiritual power, the spiritual tradition of our, of, our, of our own. And so we need to be open about what the others are. But that's not our main preoccupation. We can't preoccupy ourselves with trying to uproot and close down these centers. Uh, we're not going to start... Uh, standing outside with a picket line saying these please, please places have to close. We're not, we're not going to fight against them. They're doing what they're doing. We need to show what the truth is. We need to share the truth, but we need to share the Jewish spiritual tradition, the, the Jewish power of meditation, the Jewish power of prayer. And when truth comes out, all falsely falls away. Okay. I'm going to go to some questions that have been uh, put onto the chat and uh, you're welcome to, add or to ask anything you'd like. Um, okay. So, so, so somebody's mentioned that the secrets that um, 
King Solomon divulged them to the east. It was perverted along the way. In fact, it goes further back than that. The Zohar says that Avram Avinu, Abraham, had spiritual lessons that he sent with his sons, his later sons that he had from Hagar, who was called Keturah in, in her old age. Those sons were sent to the land of the east with spiritual secrets. Um, and the Zohar says that they were... Um, they were spiritual uh, ideas that, that are the source of some of the Eastern religions. So certain Eastern religious ideas do come from, from truth, but the Zohar says they were mixed up with idolatrous ideas. And so you've got to be very, very careful with them. Um, okay. Somebody, somebody's uh, asking about Ayurvedic medicine. Is that part of this idol worship? Yes. Some, some of the Ayurveda stuff is, has uh, is, is spiritual it's not it's not uh, it's not a herbal medicine it's it's connecting to certain spiritual things so you have to be extremely careful as to which one what, what you what you go for there generally speaking um if if there is some um some rational explanation for you know a, a herbal thing that has some power that's fine we we we, we, we accept the power of, of certain herbs but if it's a spiritual thing if, if it has some spiritual uh, power to it, so then we stay away from any other spirituality. Um, is it idolatrous to accept or use a present given for New Year, a tradition from communist Russia? Um, no, not necessarily. Uh, a, a gift is a gift, and a, a New Year, the New Year is not, not innately an idolatrous practice, um, so that, that's not, not a problem. Can you use Hashem as your mantra word? Uh, you, yes, you can. You can think of Hashem's name. In fact, a beautiful, a beautiful meditation is to breathe in time with the letters of Hashem's name. Uh, Hashem's name has four letters, Yud and Hey and Vav and Hey. The numerical value of those four letters is 10, 5, 6 and 5. And so what you can do is you breathe out for 10, hold for 5, breathe in for 6 and hold for 5. And you keep doing it, thinking Yud, and then hey, and then vav and hey. If you if you if you do that, you're meditating on the divine name. You're breathing, exhaling longer than you inhale, which is also just good for to, to lower your heart rate, uh, and that's very powerful. And 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 that's that's totally kosher. Uh, you can't verbalize God's name over and over. That uh, only only in actual prayer you can do that. But thinking it is totally fine, uh, assuming assuming that you're in a, a clean place. You can't do that, let's say in the bathroom. And anyway, it's not the place to meditate. Um, okay. Um, if anyone wants to unmute, I see uh, Miri has a hand up. If you'd like to unmute and ask a question, you're welcome to do that. Uh, Rabbi, I'd like to comment more than ask a question, if I may, please. Sure. Um, I have to preface this by saying this is purely subjective. It's my own observation and my own experience. You are 100% correct. I endorse everything that you have said. TM was also very, very trendy in the 90s. And in the mid 90s, as a result of a health orientated domain shift in my life, I did a foray into Buddhism. I went to, I did a lot of reading on it. I went to many satsangs, some of which were actually conducted by Tibetan monks. And for a while, I looked upon it as a philosophy and not a religion. However, the last satsang I ever went to was one conducted by a very revered guru by the name of Guru Maya, a woman. 
And there was this frisson in the room before she came, before she entered. The excitement anticipation was palpable. And when she entered the room, people genuflected, they bowed to her and they virtually kissed her feet. And it was at this stage that I realized I was in a forum that was worshiping idols. I have to also disagree with regard to the fact that people are unsuspecting because usually when you go into these satsangs, there are statues of Buddha in the room. So that immediately should be a warning signal that there is an idol present. I found that a lot of these people were looking for a sense of connection, were looking to sort of belong to a tribe, a community, were perhaps disillusioned with parts of their lives. And the singing with the vibraphone, the chanting, like with a Hillsong church, when you do this all together in unison, it's like an opiate and you can become addicted to it very easily and very quickly. But you are quite correct. We don't, the Jewish religion does not, is not out there enough because I think if you go to shul and you join in the singing of the choir or you join in the singing with a kahila, you get that same feeling of being high basically. And you don't need things like Buddhism. So, and the other thing where you're correct, yes, the people at the top got and get very, very rich and the rest of the people just live in servitude. So um, I just really want to endorse everything that you have said, because I have lived that experience. Thank you for an interesting lecture. Thanks, Mary. Thank you very much for sharing that. All right. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you so much, Rabbi Moss. That was incredible uh, and very relevant. Uh, thank you so much for joining everyone. Tomorrow, please God, we have day two. Uh, Rabbi Chaitin will continue his men's shear at 10 o'clock. For the women, we have Dani Kosowski from Orson's giving a women's shear. And then the second hour, Rabbi Chaitin will be giving a lecture about the musical notes of the Torah. It should be a fascinating lecture. So come on and join. All the same links as, yet, as, as today will be tomorrow. And uh, have a wonderful day, everyone. Thank you so much.